And welcome to another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. We are your retro talk network for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On today's show, we talk about man, moon, media, and myth. Well, welcome to another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. We have a great in-studio guest with us, and this promises to be a most interesting show. The title of our show today is Man, Moon, Media, and Myth. Fifty years ago, President John F. Kennedy challenged the nation to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Between 1961 and 1969, dozens of TV shows and movies were produced that our guest feels were inspired by the space race and JFK's promise to the American people. George Halulakos will tell us about two of these shows, if they were accurate or way out there. In addition, we remember the era of the 1960s in terms of the space race, the personalities, and positive aspect that made this such a memorable time in the United States. I would like to welcome George Halulakos to our program. George, welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. We've got a lot to talk about, but before we begin... Let's listen to an excerpt from President Kennedy's State of the Union Address of May 25th, 1961. That'll kind of help to set the pace for what we're going to talk about. Now it is time to take longer strides. Time for a great new American enterprise. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. we possess all the resources and talents necessary, but the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long-range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. But in a very real sense, it will not be one man going to the moon. We make this judgment affirmatively. It will be an entire nation. I believe we should go to the moon. A moving address that challenged the nation to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. George, you, along with your father, have authored a great thesis titled The Science of Space Flight in Classic Sci-Fi Cinema, A Remembrance of Lost in Space and Planet of the Apes, and you have dedicated this fine report to the memory of the Apollo 1 astronauts. We're going to talk about your specific findings, but first, let's talk briefly about three things that you and I spoke about prior to our meeting today, and that is the extraordinary people involved, a different era, kind of a can-do approach to the space mission, and the positive aspect or innocence of that era, kind of an underlying optimism of that time as compared to the cynicism of today. Let's talk about those things. What comes to mind? Well, what comes to mind is the extraordinary combination of talent, of skill, of abilities 
that all of these people brought to bear. The astronauts were truly exceptional people. Not only were they heroes before they became astronauts, many of them were decorated combat veterans, test pilots, but they were also scientists. They were engineers. They were technicians. They were proficient in a wide facet of, of uh, areas that were relevant to spaceflight. Mm-hmm. So they were at the top you know, of, of their class, so to speak, in every one of those categories, the best of the best. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we see that the characters that are portrayed in the uh, two science fiction programs that we selected also represented that same philosophy. If you looked at the curriculum vitae of those fictional characters, very similar to the Mercury 7 astronauts that later became the genesis for uh, Gemini and Apollo. Mm -hmm. And what about the positive era, the can-do approach? There was so much of a positive aspect, and I think that you coined it really, really well when you said it was almost like an innocence. We can do this. There's no way we can fail. Absolutely. There There was no cynicism involved. There was clearly a very positive outlook, and the emphasis was, what can we do to make this work? Mm -hmm. And there was also, I think, uh, a willingness to take risk without fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was so eloquently expressed by Gus Grissom, one of the Apollo 1 astronauts to whom this paper is dedicated, Mr. Grissom said very clearly that he was in the only profession where failure actually enables you to make progress because you eliminate, you know, an alternative that could otherwise you know, be counterproductive and you move forward. So this was a very, very positive era in which we were not only looking to fulfill President Kennedy's objective to land a man on the moon, but we were actually looking beyond that. We were looking at establishing a moon base, a base on Mars, and interstellar travel. All of these things were in the works and on the drawing boards in the 1960s. It went well beyond uh, simply the race to the moon. And, of course, we were talking about the fact that, and I remember this clearly, we landed on the moon in 1969. Now, I think in the post-war era, there was talk about getting to the moon by the turn of the century. So we were there 31 years early. So the, the logic was, if we've gotten to the moon early, which means at the turn of the century, we'll be going to Mars. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, it, when you look in, in the paper here, we have a timetable about important milestones. Einstein's equal MC squared occasion conceived in 1905. And then, of course, the antiproton discovered in 1955. Mankind going from Sputnik to Apollo in less than 12 years. So all of these things happening in a compressed period. People don't realize that the progression of knowledge uh, grows at an exponential or geometric scale. And so it was not inconceivable by the mid-60s to think of the fact that, gee, by the end of the century, we could be colonizing not only uh, planets within our own solar system, but in interstellar systems, which, of course, was the genesis of both Lost in Space and Planet of the Apes. And talk to us about that, George. The focus of the paper that you and your father have written is on the spaceflight technology featured in the 1964 unaired pilot episode of Lost in Space titled No Place to Hide and the 1968 classic motion picture Planet of the Apes. How did you and your father get interested in in writing this paper? Well, when I was growing up, my dad was so kind to involve me in sharing about his work. I mean, as much as he could do because he had top secret clearance. So for me, growing up, the astronauts were real-life heroes. 
So naturally, I gravitated towards these science fiction programs. Initially, on Saturday mornings, we used to watch Fireball XL5, and then we watched Space Angel. And then, of course, as I grew older, Lost in Space came on the air, and then Planet of the Apes. And my dad watched all these programs with me, and he also enjoyed them. In fact, our one of our favorite memories is that we went to see Planet of the Apes in 1968, December, and we went the day that the Apollo 8 moon mission was launched. Oh, yes. So there was all these connections uh, that were there, and it stayed with us. You know, there's an argument to be made. There's listeners listening right now saying, hey, he forgot all about Star Trek. Huh? What about what about Star Trek doesn't fit the uh, well, Star, format here, does it? Actually, Star Trek is a favorite of both mine and my father's. My father actually has published a separate paper that is highlighted or referenced in this paper about uh, 21st propulsion technology, and he actually makes the case for warp drive technology. Our purpose here, however, was really twofold. One is that we made the observation that Star Trek really didn't represent American exceptionalism. It tended to be an international or, uh, shall we say, uh, interplanetary type of, of mission. The other thing about it was that it did not really refer directly to our own culture, and I'm not speaking necessarily of just the United States, but um, the, the Earth. And what was great about LIS and about Planet of the Apes was that they represent American exceptionalism. They also are talking about the Earth and moving forward and exploring and actually colonizing and establishing operations that uh, were not really so far-fetched. Star Trek was a real leap out several centuries. Lost in Space and Planet of the Apes, if you look at the underlying technology, as my dad and I do, it actually was quite feasible to have accomplished it within the time frame that was given to us. That's one thing I wanted to quote from your uh, paper, George, uh, the paper that you and your dad wrote. We enjoyed these classic sci-fi productions, and not only for the adventure, but also how they reflected American ingenuity and technology that made such stories a very real and an achievable possibility within our lifetimes. Yes, and this actually follows through from Jules Verne's excellent novels, uh, From the Earth to the Moon and Round the Moon. And I remember reading them as a child. I reread them again later, as did my father. And if you look at Jules Verne, this is, you know, back in the 19th century, here it is, a French author. He says, it requires Yankee ingenuity to explore space. And he talks about all of the same qualities that we believe were uh, unique to the Mercury 7 astronauts and then later the characters in Lost in Space and Planet of the Apes. You make a good point here because if you take the two granddaddies of science fiction writing, H.G. Wells and Verne, Verne always stuck to the, the, the right formulas, the right the realities. Yes. Wells kind of veered off in, you know, in imagination. I like Wells, but Wells to me is more science fantasy, whereas I think that uh, Jules Verne was more science fiction, and so he followed the protocols and the science prisms of that time, and that's what we tried to do with this paper here. And, uh, let me jump in with something, too, when we talk about the, the unreleased pilot episode, No Place to Hide, of Lost in Space. We talk about Jules Verne, we talk about the visionaries, the, the sci-fi thinkers. Uh, I don't know, Ian, if you're aware, but No Place to Hide was directed by none other, and written by Irwin Allen. So, Jules Verne, Irwin Allen, H.G. Yes. Wells. Irwin Allen was a he, was a modern version to me. Of, he did um, the Jules disaster Verne. movies. Disaster, yeah. some of the... Uh, yeah. Some sci-fi epics. That's right, he was connected to that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think he did the Time Tunnel, too, if I'm not mistaken. The Time Tunnel. Time tunnel that was yeah. also a favorite of my dad's. Was and, it really? And, and mine as well. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it was wonderful. That was sort of a, a fantasy version of You Are There. <laughs> That's true. That Walter That's Cronkite an interesting did. way of putting it, by yeah. the way. Did these directors and writers, George, did they go over to NASA and compare notes, you know, have a club sandwich and a, and a Pepsi and say, hey, I'm working on this. Uh, how far off am I from here? And NASA, vice versa, the same way. Hey, we're working on this... Uh, space shot here. How far off are we? <laughs> it's always interesting to me to note that uh, so oftentimes the uh, science fiction ends up becoming science fact. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what's so cool about Science this. fact. Talk to us a little bit about the technology that's portrayed both in Lost in Space and in the uh, 1968 Planet of the Apes movie. We had Gemini 12 and Air Force 1. Right. Well, the Gemini 12, of course, was in the original pilot as a tribute to the Gemini space program. Of course, later when it was released to the network, it was changed to the Jupiter 2. But what was interesting about it, it was a very futuristic um, spacecraft because it's saucer-shaped and it had takeoff and landing capabilities. And in the black and white episodes, particularly in the pilot episode, you notice that there is this pulsating glow uh, that it surrounds the spaceship as it takes off and as it flies through space. And my father made the observation when we were doing the research on this, he goes, do you know, he says, that would be associated with an atomic-powered anti-gravity propulsion system, which makes sense because, and then my dad in this paper here, he gives you the technical aspects of how you can create an anti-gravity system. Wow. So in point of fact, that is something that was workable and achievable, again, looking out 30 or 40 years. In the case of Planet of the Apes, it's a little closer to what we were accustomed to with the protocol of the 60s because in the Planet of the Apes series, initially their launch date is given as 1972. So at that time, there was no takeoff and landing capabilities. You landed in the water. Well, I make the observation that the spacecraft obviously was programmed with its onboard computers to make a water landing. And, of course, as we know in Planet of the Apes, one of the all-time surprising endings... Our view is is that the, that the computers already noted that they had made a round trip, were back on Earth, and so they landed in the water. And that's, that was why uh, it, it ended up the way it did. Wow. But the other thing about Planet of the Apes in terms of the technology, if you, if you look at the opening sequences where Charlton Heston is providing the opening narration, you see uh, the uh, blue light effect of the spectrum, which indicates you're traveling at very, very high speeds. And you hear rocket power in the background that would be consistent with nuclear rockets, which, of course, my father worked on as well. Also very feasible and within the time frame that we talked about, particularly given the military's involvement. Fascinating. Because I love the story about the apes and how it all turns out uh, that they become, you know, the masters and we became the monkeys in a a sense. Yeah, what a wonderful story. (laughs) And, and, And that was kind of the interesting thing. My dad and I, when we watched it, we said, you know, it's a great adventure story, surprise ending, but what gets lost is the appreciation for the spaceflight technology, and that's another reason why we wanted to write the paper. Some, same thing with Lost in Space. Obviously, in the, in the original pilot, it was written as a very serious adult science fiction that later, of course, became you know, more written for kids as it changed its content. But initially, it, it, it reflected all of the scientific protocols that we knew at the time. Wow. George, how did the uh, technological climate of the Apollo program color the... Uh the way the technology was presented on Lost in Space and Planet of the Apes. Well, it's interesting. If you look at the uniforms, or not so much the uniforms, but the spacesuits, they are exactly the same as were worn by the uh, 
Mercury, and then later the Gemini astronauts, and then also the Apollo astronauts. So clearly, this, the, the spacesuit technology, uh, the safety protocols, and also the uh, use of propulsion technology followed very much in line with what you would want to do uh, when not only engage in interstellar flight, but also take off and landing procedures. In the case of with the, with the, the monkey movie itself, you had the, that was that came out in '68, and it spawned several sequels, didn't it? And it, even a TV show. Yes, it did. Interesting thing about the the first sequel that that had uh, James Franciscus as an astronaut that goes to search for Charlton Heston and his group. If you look closely at the wreckage. That spaceship is a bit different in terms of its configuration. My dad and I looked at it, and we concluded that it actually had what appears to be a lunar landing module. If you look at the pictures there where Franciscus is kneeling down by the injured captain, it looks to be a rescue vehicle. So the idea was that they were going to use a lunar landing module-type uh, spacecraft to retrieve them, come back to the mothership, and then return home. So it's kind of interesting to see how that was done. The other one uh, that was the TV series, interesting uh, development with that. It was hosted by Roddy McDowell, uh, and then later it was reissued, in, and I believe it was in the United Kingdom, and what ended up happening is that Roddy McDowell, at the very end, he plays a much older character, and he says that the astronauts eventually found the means by which they were able to return to their own time. And so it kind of went full circle, is what we're saying. Full circle, exactly. And that was a nice TV series as well. It only lasted a year, but there were some very, very fine performances uh, uh, in, in that program. I don't know why this was a problem for g garnering an audience unless maybe the idea had exhausted itself. I don't know. It may have been. I think at the time that it was uh, released, uh, Planet of the Apes had just uh, engaged in its fourth or fifth sequel, and I think at that point uh, there was a, a sense of burnout or been there, done that. But apparently it, it was still sufficient enough to actually spawn a Saturday morning cartoon the following year. So, Wow, so it's gone several different directions. It certainly has. I think Roddy McDowell, he was in the first one. I think he missed the second one, if I'm not mistaken. He did. Came in back to the third. Correct, correct. And then, then, he, then he wrote it right through. Then he, all, then, then he went all the way through. Yeah. yeah. It, it was amazing. By the way, interesting connection between Rod Serling, Planet of the Apes, and Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. If you look at the ending for Twilight Zone's episode, I shot an arrow in the air where the astronauts find themselves just outside of uh, Las Vegas, I believe, <laughs> yeah, or right. Reno, yeah. that, uh, where he draws the telephone poles yes. in the sand. Yes. Rod Serling was brought in to do the cleanup work hmm. for Planet of the Apes, the script. Oh. And it was Rod Serling that conceived of the ending with the Statue of Liberty, where Charlton right? Heston finds That it. was his idea. Yes. Well, he also he collaborated in that script. Uh, saving or script fixing with Michael Wilson. Yes. Who, uh, Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia. And together they got it and, and spun it out, uh, fixed it rather, so to speak. They turned the script to more of a, a film concerned with science versus faith, I think. Just a foot. We can talk a little bit about that, too. I just want to make a quick footnote, and I shot an arrow into the air. Yes. Uh -huh. Actually, it's almost a giveaway if you continue with the poem. It's, is it Wood, uh, Longfellow's poem? I shot yes. A, I yes. shot an arrow into the What's the next line? I knew not so where. No, it, yeah. it fell to earth, I knew not yeah. where. Oh. And it gives away the whole plot. That's exactly right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to... This is a, such a fascinating topic. We're going to pause right now for our retro commercial. And then we'll be back with more of our guest, George Holakos, and we're going to talk more about men and moon and myth right after this. From nearly a quarter million miles up, it's a small world for sure. 
But to a truck driver traveling a moonlit highway, hauling a Saturn engine cross-country, the world looks a lot bigger. Trucks play a major role in America's space effort, just as they do in every part of our lives. For it's trucks we depend on to bring us the things we need and want. It takes an incredibly sophisticated operation to move a multi-ton vehicle to the moon. And it also takes the most sophisticated transportation system down here on Earth to move goods where we want them, when we want them, getting out of highways what we've built into them, helping to hold down the rising costs of transportation without sacrificing highway safety. B.F. Goodrich is a member of the ATA Foundation, the American Trucking Industry and proud to be a part of this vital and progressive industry. Oh, that's a blast from a Wednesday night 40-something years ago. <laughs> yes. Johnny Williams. Oh, I had, oh. I had the biggest crush on Penny. Mm. Lost in Space, uh, the tie-in here. You are listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. And Gilbert, Mike, and Ian, Smitty, Gilbert, Mike, Ian, and George Halalakos, our good guest here. We're talking, the subject is Moon Mission, Space, Planet of the Apes, uh, Jewel of the Nile and anything else you can think of in American pop, but we're kind of sticking around with the 60s today, and Ian was deep into uh, driving right off the edge of a serious thought when we went to our retro commercial. <laughs> we're going to bring Ian as, back as in. As usual. Ian, uh, George is kind of across the studio here, flinching, ready for another <laughs> Ian Rose fastball. Ian, Ian, throw some flame. I drove off, and I haven't pulled myself back yet. You, you're dual tracking here is what you're telling us. We're heading to the moon, right, from 61 to 69, while, while we've got in the media, the movies and TV, uh, parallel stories. So, somewhat to some degree. Yes. So that, that's what we're heading for. Yes. And then all of a sudden we get to 1969 and we land on the moon. Absolutely. But what was interesting is that during the 1964-66 period, which can be considered as the peak period, we were basically launching a Gemini mission almost every month. I mean, there was 12 missions during that two-year period. So space became an accepted part of our culture. And... At that point, people are thinking, wow, we're going to be able to travel not just to the moon, but to Mars and beyond. And this, what was great think, in this research that we uncovered, was that this was actually on the drawing boards by you know our nation's finest scientists and engineers. And as is always typical of our pop culture, it picked up on that. So Lost in Space, released in 1964, flashes forward to October 16, 1997, and where are we going? Alpha Centauri. <laughs> and Planet of the Apes, even though it's not given, we can make the same inference from the scientific protocols at that time that Planet of the Apes was going to do a survey or flyby mission of the nearest interstellar system, which would have been Alpha Centauri. So there's a lot of interesting connections and also parallels with the scientific protocols of the day, which we thought kind of got lost with all of the people focusing on the the adventure aspect of the stories, of the fantasy aspects, and we just thought it was kind of fun to take a look at that. I don't want to get ahead of myself here, George, but if, if you, you'll permit me, because we're heading in this dual track to 69, 
we land on the moon not once but several times, right? Yes, yes. So we make several moon landings. Yes. And I was thinking, gosh, we've done the moon a few times, and we're going to do uh, a who, uh, and all of a sudden there's a big, kind of a big a letdown. I just finished reading the biography of Pete Conrad titled Rocket Man, and what is mentioned there, and this is not well known, I confirmed this with my father, who of course was operating on the inside of this. Regrettably, when the Apollo 1 astronauts, who are, this paper is dedicated to astronauts Grissom, Chaffee, and White, were killed, that uh, it not only delayed what was going on, it ended up actually resulting in the cancellation of additional Apollo flights. We actually ended up canceling the moon base. We canceled Mars. We focused on Skylab, which is what Mr. Conrad was involved in. His goal was to make Skylab a launch point to fulfill those missions, but we simply ran out of money. And I think uh, when I say we ran out of money, public funding uh, is what is what happened. You know, politics gets involved. And it's really unfortunate because the, the focus was that it was, uh, you know, a Cold War race. And we had won. And so now time to do something else. And we were just getting started. That's the sad part. And what is also sad, if you look at science fiction, say, in the 1970s, it were these eco-stories where the earth turned into a toilet. Exactly. And it was and it was so depressing. So cynical. And that's why I think why some people and why I love your program so much is that it's the focus is not so much on nostalgia, but it's a focus on what is good, what is positive. And this I think is what your program does so very well is that you take the best of the past, we kit, we take that with us and we move forward on that. That is really how progress is accomplished, is we take the best of our past, whether it be in culture or science or literature or any other field of endeavor, and we build on that excellence. And regrettably, we have not done that with, uh, you know, with what we accomplished uh, with the space program. Yeah, George, um, Planet of the Apes, of course, was released just on the, on the verge of, uh, of the Apollo 11 moon landing a year before. Yes. And was there any difference uh, that you can tell as far as, I don't know, the general mood of the times uh, between Lost in Space in 64 and, and Planet of the Apes in 68 where we were, we kind of felt we were getting closer to that goal of landing a man on the moon? Was there a buildup, a climactic buildup in the public mind? I think that there was, very definitely. And if really, if you go back to Lost in Space for a moment, mm-hmm. in their final episode, or excuse me, their final season during the 67-68 season, they actually had a little interstellar spacecraft that was an exact replica of the lunar lander called the space pod. And in the case of Planet of the Apes, uh, they were obviously thinking about uh, colonization, but I also, there was a little bit of cynicism there because Charlton Heston, before he puts himself into stasis, he says, I wonder if man still makes war upon himself. So this is now 1968, four years later, there's a little bit of cynicism creeping in. Probably due to all the the Vietnam War, the social unrest in the country, in the world, as far as that goes. Absolutely. Or, uh-huh. And, of course, you know, Heston was able to do it in, a, in an understated way, but it comes across very definitely. Well, you know, and there's a lot of the naysayers and the people who, who fought the space race that said the space race, the whole 60s era of, of exploration, NASA, and the, and the goal of landing on the moon was just a big government conspiracy to divert the American people from what was going on in Vietnam. And we go that, and then we go to the casing, the uh, the view that the uh, that the moon landing never occurred. So there was the fringe element at those times too. Exactly. You'll find that in every yes, era. everything all along. Uh, yes, yeah, all along culture. Uh, talk George, about Capricorn One, yeah. George. 
Or further, that was 10 years down the road in, what, Yeah, I think because... And I think, that was reminiscent of an Apollo craft, too, in the movie, Well, exactly. And, and by 1978, there was a real cynicism. Yes. Almost, uh, I guess, to quote a term that was used uh, exactly a year later in 1979, malaise. Malaise. <laughs> and, yes, malaise. and I think that, 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 again, the movies and the TV shows at the time pick up on that mood. And so you're questioning, gee, did that really happen? What did we ben- What did we get from that? What benefits did it produce? But I'm sitting here in your studio, and I'm looking at all this electronic equipment, and I can tell you this, if it weren't for the Apollo Moon Program, we wouldn't be able to sit here in no, this studio exactly. and enjoy what we're doing. Exactly. And, and that, a lot of other stuff, too, yeah, George, cell, the microwave cell ovens. Cell phones, computers, microwave ovens, all sure. kinds of things that we take for granted today. All of this yeah. comes about because of man's desire to explore, explore. and to grow. Exactly. George, we're okay. almost out of time, but before we leave this this topic, one last question. How do you think that all of this relates to uh, the nation wanting to fulfill President Kennedy's dream that he did not live to see? Well, I believe that in American culture, Jules Verne had it right. We clearly have a can-do approach. We are exceptional because we bring the very best of all cultures and all peoples from the world. My father is a good example of that. Coming here from Greece and then becoming an Arab space engineer, classmate of Neil Armstrong, works with Pete Conrad, and then I get to be his son, and I follow all this. So I think that it just represents uh, why we are able to uh, represent the best of the best in terms of human progress. Wonderful. Well, George Holocos, we've enjoyed having you on our show. We're going to definitely, we'd like to have you come back on again some other time. Hopefully you'll be willing to come back and join I us. I would love that. The, this half hour just flew by, as they all do, and we thank you so much for such an interesting topic and we thank you and your father for writing this wonderful paper and i want to thank you guys for what you do i again i I really appreciate the fact that you take the best of of the past and you educate people you inform them but more importantly you inspire them thank you george we appreciate that very much well we're almost out of time but we want to remind you that if you would like to write us we definitely would like to hear from you our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com and don't forget that we have a Facebook page too it's called Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite and we're going to be posting some very interesting pictures that George is going to be kind enough to do some scans of some of his wonderful collectibles and we're going to post those on Facebook and on our website too so make sure that you look for that that's it for this week we sure thank you for joining us And on behalf of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight, I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm George. And we thank you folks for joining us. We look forward to having you again next time. (laughs) 